On today's More Than a Test podcast, we've got Steve Carnavale. If you are in California, you have definitely heard this name. He is the co-chairman and founder of the UCSF Dyslexia Center. He also is a venture capitalist, currently with his own boutique firm, Point Cypress Ventures. He's been the president of the Charles Armstrong School for Children with Dyslexia. He's been on the board of various nonprofits, currently on the board of Learning Ally. Today, we're gonna talk a lot about his business advice, his advice for parents, his advice for educators trying to help children learn to read, and for all of us who care a lot about the science of reading and students with dyslexia. Hey, Steve, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure, Laura. <laughs> Our guests don't know this, but it's 6.30 in the morning, so thanks for getting up early. We're so glad you're here. Um, just a second ago, I read through your bio, and I'm going to be really honest with you. So when our my producer and I were working together on your bio, uh, it took us a long time to narrow it down. There's so much there of all, of all the things you've accomplished in your career. But what really resonated with me, um, I don't know if you know this about me, but I got my executive MBA last summer. And I think if you had asked anyone in my class, like at least 89, 90% would say, you know, in my in my life, I want to be Steve Carnavale. <laughs> like really and truly, a lot of people go in to get MBAs because they want to work in VCs, they want to make a lot of money, and they want to go do good. Is that is that how it feels to you? Does it feel like you had this plan of what you wanted to do, and like you're you're kind of checking it all off the list? No, this feels like an accidental journey from the beginning, actually. Really? Well, what What did you set out to do? Tell well, me I mean, I, I look. I I grew up in a in a in a blue collar town, Dearborn, Michigan, uh, Henry Ford town, and uh, I didn't know anybody with money. I didn't know a lot about the world. Went to Michigan, and I took the first job that paid a lot of money, and there wasn't a big plan. So I started out working in business. I I knew I wanted to be in business. I love business and organizations, but it took me a while to figure out the power was more on the money side. And so I gravitated to venture eventually. And so that was a little more intentional, but my journey to philanthropy and in all the giving back I do now was a complete accidental journey, which really starts with my dyslexic son. And, and, and it really went from there. Okay, so exactly. That's exactly where I want to start. We're going to talk about the money and all of the success that you've had because you've been extremely successful and people want to hear those stories. But the reason you and I connect is because of a lot of the good that you that you do now. And so I, what I'd love to talk about is the UCSF Dyslexia Center. So will you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. I, during the course of this dyslexic journey, uh, my son, who's one of the lucky ones, got to a specialty school that specializes in helping kids who are dyslexic, but it mostly comes from from parents of wealth who can afford those schools. And I ended up as president of that board, and that's when I began to understand what schools are capable of doing and what they do not do. And, uh, and when I started researching dyslexia more, I really had one simple question in my mind. People were telling me a lot about what these kids can do and can't do, and I thought, where is this dyslexia thing in the brain? Nobody can tell me where it is in the brain. They can tell me what comes out of the brain. How do these kids act in school? But they couldn't tell me where it comes from. Like a lot of the kids that are dyslexic are told that they have slow processing speed. It's like, where is that processing speed in the 
brain because my son doesn't seem like he's a slow processor when he plays. So why would he be in school? Didn't make sense to me. And out of that, I, again, it was really accidental, but I ended up at UCSF and got very lucky because we have some of the leading brain researchers in the world at UCSF. And I approached them with that simple question, where is dyslexia in the brain? And how long ago was that? That was in 2010. Okay. So we're looking like 13, 14 years ago, you show up and you say, can, can anyone tell me this? Yeah. <laughs> and what did, what did they say? Well, th th they were fascinated. I mean, I said, look, I, what I know is that in schools that try to teach to these kids, they do it in a multimodal way because they know the kids have different ways of learning than in a traditional classroom and getting sitting there and getting drill and kill doesn't work for them. And so I said, we need a multidiscipline research team, whatever that meant. I didn't really know because I was not a neuroscience researcher, nor am I really an educator. I'm just a business guy trying to solve a problem. And so I said, you know, let's pull together a lot of people. So, so that's what they did. They literally sent out a notice to all of UCSF. There are 3,000 researchers of all walks of life. And they said, hey, anybody that want to learn about dyslexia, you know, show up at this room at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And about 35 people showed up from all different disciplines. And it was just like, I don't know if you've ever been, you gone to, to, to a big company where you meet people and people, it's so big, people don't know each other. It was the same way that you see itself. Somebody's like, well, I'm, I'm studying, I'll make this up. I'm studying, you know, gene 27.6 for, for aging diseases. And this person across the room is like, I'm studying 27.6 for Parkinson's. What are you finding? So, so all of a sudden there was these sparks flying from this collaboration that almost happened immediately. We go around the room and we not only find out people are really interested in this thing about dyslexia from a brain viewpoint, but, but, but it turns out a lot of the people in the room are either have learning differences or they have family members that are, have learning differences. So they have a lot of interest. And, and so, so, so a guy by the name of Bob Hendren, who was the number two guy in psychiatry, was the guy that I, I connected with initially who got excited about this and for a variety of reasons. But he, the, the other guy that, the other two people that showed up that day were Bruce Miller and Mary Lou Gordon Tempini. Mary Lou now runs our center. She's number one researcher for, uh, with Bruce, who started the entire memory and aging center at UCSF. And he's a world, well, they both are world brain researchers. Mary Lou is the world's expert of language in the brain. So I've got the people sitting right there that know all this crazy stuff about the brain. I'm like, tell me, you know, what, what where in the brain is this? processing certain they said i i have never heard of such a thing you started with 35 people that randomly were requested to come to this room and now there's not a conversation about dyslexia that doesn't include this center right it, this is what everyone everyone's saying all the best research how, how did so how did that so you ask this question of these people who may have some sort of answer and now it's this huge center that's guiding everyone tell me a little well more. So, so you know i i a lot of the things I didn't understand at the front end, you know, it's like a startup in business. You only understand in hindsight, you know, Elon Musk only understands the movement he's creating today. He doesn't really understand exactly what he's doing with this car at the front end. And it's the same, it's the same way here. So I've got these researchers and they, they go into the research and they're like, you know, the people in education don't really use brain research the way, you know, we use it for aging diseases, which is where most 
most of the money is going into. So they got really fascinated. And, and fast forward today, you know, they, they really changed their view. They start to look at the brain issues now across the lifespan, and they notice things by studying young children have helped them better understand what happens with, with aging diseases and problems later in life. But again, that's many years later that they figure that out. So we have these people all around the table. They have imaging expertise and brain expertise. They all study different circuits in the brain, and they all start coming together and talking about how they can actually study children. And then one of the seminal events happened, which is Mary Lugorno Tempini's daughter becomes dyslexic, or be, the, 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 the school She's says identified. identified. And, and, and so she starts going through the system, and she comes back one day, and she starts screaming at me. She's not really screaming at me, but she's she's Italian, and she's waving her arms, and she's saying, you know, the, the, they, they're testing my daughter through all these traditional education testings. And I said to them, you know, your tests have nothing to do with the way the brain works. And that was the first red light. And I said, I know, Mary Lou, that's why we formed this center. She's like, oh, now I really get it, you know, so... So, so, so there were these kind of funny moments that, that, that really gave birth to the center. Well, and so let me, let me dial in on that because what I heard you say a second ago is like schools, education system schools are not really using this brain research. And then when you look at this dyslexia center website, you have this line on the mission about like, and we connect with schools and we're working with education systems. So tell me how, how does that going, right? How are, are schools coming along with you? Are they understanding the research? Are they wanting to change? Tell me about that. Yeah. Schools love this stuff. So, so look, I use, I have a couple of bags of tricks. I know that nobody follows me because I'm a, a smart person. I'm not that smart. What they follow me for is that I'm a, I'm a fundraiser. So I raise money and what I know two things about researchers now. I know that if you leave them to themselves, they'll go off in the weeds and research things that interest them that may not connect to the real world. So what I did from the very beginning is we started the center connected to a school, in this case, the Charles Armstrong School, which had an entire school of dyslexic kids. And I said, let's go study those kids. And so the researchers, and this was hard at the beginning, they didn't speak education. Education didn't speak neuroscience. It took a couple of years just to create a, a common language. But the, the teachers in the schools were very excited because they struggle with these kids every day and they look at them and they know there are differences, but they're, they're not sure is, the, is, the, is what I'm seeing real or not. And we start to get MRIs of kids in, in the researchers look at these brains and then they start using testing out of the neuroscience field as opposed to the education field and they can start to show circuits that are different. They can start to explain behaviors that kids have where they struggle. For example, you know, one of the things you learn is that sometimes kids get broadly uh, identified as having memory issues, but it turns out our brain has a bunch of different memory circuits. Our, our memory circuit for vision is very different than our auditory circuit. So you can, you can have great vision memory and really bad auditory memory, and that's going to explain why a kid sitting in a classroom is not going to remember anything they hear, but if they look at it visually, they're going to remember a lot. So it, it, it dictates a very different kind of an instructional approach and, and that started to inform and we worked with teachers because the, the neuroscientists are not education experts so they left it to the teachers to translate how to use this neuroscience and bring it into the classroom and teach the kids differently. 
Wow, that's amazing. And so let's go talk back to Mary Lou's daughter. So one of the things she was saying was like, this assessment's not good, right? right? right. What you're using to assess my daughter for dyslexia. So is there a new assessment? Is there something now that we're using that's better? Yeah, we are We are now working on a, a program. It's called Multitudes. And it really started in a partnership with the now uh, governor of California, Gavin Newsom. I established a relationship when he was still the mayor of San Francisco and he was a well-known dyslexic learner. And so I approached him in, in like 2011 and I said, hey, I'm doing this. You want to get involved? He comes over to the center. He was really re heavily responsible for the new UCSF Mission Bay campus existing. They took this area that was just kind of a swamp and they turned it into this magnificent campus and, and so he was kind of looking out when he visited us like a proud parent of this and then and then in the middle of that I said you know would you be our honorary chair so he's been with me on this journey all along because he deeply cares about dyslexia deeply cares about kids he's he's driven billions of dollars into the education system and for uh, mental health and other areas to help kids which you would think is normal but it turns out it's not a lot of politicians oddly don't care as much about that but anyway he, he came along and I worked with him and he got us when he became governor he got us funding to actually develop an assessment for children and do it what we know is we need to assess as early as possible and right now we're we're, we're testing a screener that's neuroscience based in kindergarten and first grade and it's 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 revolutionary because it's not using testing for the behavior of these kids because you can't really test for reading in kindergarten. That's why historically it's taken so long to figure this out. But but when you understand the brain and you understand the circuits that go into the foundation of reading, you can actually isolate and start testing some of those circuits through some of this testing that will will give you hints to kids that may be at risk for learning differences. And so we're really trying to identify those foundational blocks. And we can probably do it even younger and, and will eventually with enough funding. But we're focused on kindergarten, first grade, and we're now out in the school t system. This is our second year of testing and validating uh, children in, in California public schools with an eye toward rolling this out to all children because we need to identify, if, if we identify them early that they may be at risk, then then we have an opportunity to intervene and change the course of their life. Okay, so let's talk about that. So part of the reason you and I connect so well is that you have twins and I have twins and my sister and brother are twins and my older sister um, was identified with dyslexia. And so you're saying as soon as possible, what you really mean is kindergarten, this assessment, my, my twins are three, so I should be looking for this for kindergarten, yes? Well, yeah, today and eventually younger, but sure, and kindergarten is great. Okay, so kindergarten, and then the way it's administered is with a teacher, paper and pencil. Is it on a computer? How, how yeah, are you administering no, we, this? No, we, we built this so it's on a it's on a tablet. Apple donated a bunch of tablets, and uh, oh, and cool. we uh, we administer this today. We're administering it with a a person that's that that is uh, trained to administer it. So we're seeing how the child interacts in order to try to design the best user interface and make sure that all the testings are valid. And they aren't all valid. It's taken time. It's like, you know, we're, we're, we're launching what I think of as an iPhone one. You know, we're not, we don't launch with a 14. We get to a 14. So it'll take us another, you know, the, the, this, this will drive continuous research and improvement over the next decade to the point where, you know, it, it should be really great, but it's, it's, you know, it's good now and it'll get better. Well, and I think what I hear you saying is like, we'll identify kids sooner and be able to intervene in a way that will impact their brain so they'll be able to read, right? So if Absolutely. we can identify sooner, but will we also, do you think we'll also start identifying more kids and maybe with more 
like efficiency, I guess, like we'll better understand like what's best for each child. Cause I know dyslexia kind of encompasses a lot of different things. Yeah. The, 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 look, this is about precision medicine, meeting precision education. Right now we blanket the education and, and, and people are shocked by this and aren't in education, but it only works for about a third of the population. Two thirds of our kids today are not reading at grade level by third grade. And statistically, most of them are destined for a life of underemployment all the way through to the kindergarten to prison pipeline and 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 so you know statistically 15 20 percent of the kids are, are have some learning difference which is genetic but another 50 percent of the kids are struggling probably from their environment in which their environment and their so-called social determinants of health are, are changing their brain in ways that look like dyslexic kids. So it sort of doesn't matter the cause. The output is that you've got two-thirds of the kids that are not getting taught in the ways that they need to learn. And so if we understand how their brain is structured, and our research at UCSF has identified at least six different brain structures that are contained within the dys dyslexic kids, and we can optimize education around those six different approaches, then we can begin to educate a much broader range of kids earlier. And what we know is that the brain from zero to eight is heavily, it changes and by eight years old, it's heavily developed. And so every year earlier we can get involved is, is, is going to be that much sooner to prevent, you know, misery and, and failure later in life. Okay, I think everything that I just heard you say, it kind of wraps into three uh, words that I feel like are getting thrown everywhere. <laughs> um, so tell me about how the work at UCSF you know, intersects with, informs, is part of science of reading. Well, look, the science of reading, is, it's got its own history, but it's been a battle around the fact that, that we have not, there are two, two elements of it. One is that, again, people are surprised by this, but teachers do, are not trained in how to teach kids to read. The whole education system assumes that kids are going to learn this skill by osmosis, but two-thirds of our kids are not. And, and, and one of the core fundamentals of reading is the science of reading indicates that you have to have decoding, which is the phonemic awareness, and you have to have explicit instruction. And some kids, a third of the kids, no matter what you do, they're going to learn this, but two-thirds of the kids need it explicitly. So there's been this battle for reasons I won't get into where that decoding has been avoided. And so now we've got a big movement. Everybody is agreeing decoding needs to be part of this. But more important even than that is that teachers actually need to be trained how to teach decoding and how to teach reading. But that's just the first step because once you have decoding, the real learning comes in when you build the comprehension. And that gets back to what we, and we have more of that comprehension built into the system, but people aren't taking advantage of it because they haven't gotten the decoding skills first to make sense out of the comprehension. So it's kind of a sequencing here. And what we know about the human brain is the human brain is better in younger years at this decoding. As, and as it gets older and more mature, it's then more capable of assimilating it and developing the comprehension skills to actually understand what they're reading and then apply that reading, which is what happens around third to fourth grade as you go from learning to learn to learning, learning. And, uh, and so that's a big transition.
Okay. It's incredible listening to you because you started this conversation saying you're just a business guy who was taking the job that would pay the most. And now you sound like a literacy. I mean, you sound as knowledgeable as any teacher I know. And I'm just curious. And I know it's because you spend all this time with these researchers over and over again. You say what we know about the brain is. How do we get to a place where everything that these researchers know about the brain can be translated to the classroom? What, what have you learned about that process at UCSF? It's like anything else. It's just a function of putting more money into research and driving it to an application and interfacing with teachers and with, with educators and administrators and policymakers in order to understand that we've got this, this, this powerful science and technology that can change the the course of of of, of education it's no different than you know uh, anything other uh, anything else medically you know when we when we have cancer as a problem we put a bunch of money to research it and try it in in order to cure it and, and we're doing the same thing here but what's going on is that people don't think of their brain yet as an organ you know, in 1950, we didn't think of our heart as an organ, and everybody died of brain disease. Today, 86% reduction in cardiac deaths because we now understand that the that the the heart needs to exercise. You need to eat well. You need to be lower stress. You need to do all these things to avoid heart attacks. But we have this brain that has all this amazing capability, but you actually have to treat it right. And people don't really think about the brain yet in that way. And especially that we think about the brain as this analytical organ, but the more powerful side of it is the social-emotional part. We have circuits that drive all of our emotions, all of our behaviors, all of our empathy. We have UCSF discovered a whole circuit around empathy. We can actually see the level of empathy somebody has or doesn't have. I mean, there's a lot we know inside the brain. It's scary, but there's a lot we don't know. I don't want to present this is you know <laughs> what 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 we really have is an opportunity to learn a lot more and a hundred years from now you know we're going to know so much about the brain and it's going to change everything that we do in life it'll be as understanding the brain will be as fundamentally transformative i believe a, 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 re, the real intelligence of the brain as artificial intelligence is portending to change the world, you know, today, as of a, a few months ago, when everybody discovered Chat GPT, which scientists have been working on for 40 years. I, I invested in an AI company in the 1980s. So it's been around a long time, and it's this overnight success after, you know, 40 years. So. <laughs> That's, so, but, okay, but you're saying, okay, so we're learning about the brain. There's all this stuff to learn. And the question I really asked was, you know, getting it back to classrooms. And what I hear you saying is the researchers want to bring it back to classrooms. They want to work with teachers, but those opportunities aren't there or it's well, few and far between. Well, it's the, the system is, look, when I started this 13 years ago, people said, ah, nobody's going to be interested in this and education won't change. But we've found is, frankly, I think people in the education system know that they've failed in this regard. I mean, the numbers are literally flatlined. We haven't improved literacy as long as they've been measuring it. It's, it's, it's flatlined or gotten worse. It's gotten worse during COVID. So I think there's been finally an admission or an openness by the education system that they have to do something differently. And so you see a lot of policymakers and educators 
open to trying new things, and that's why the science of reading has become, you know, really topical. And uh, and we have an open window, and teachers love this. You know, teachers jump at the chance. I, I love teachers. They're you know they, they they take care of our treasure. I mean, what's more important than our kids? It's if we can't agree on our kids and taking care of our kids, what can we agree on in this in this world where we've somehow gotten crazy divided? And uh, so yeah. yeah, so I don't know if I answered your question, but. You did. No, that's great. And and I will say, um, I, I want to talk a little bit more about how you've gone on this journey. But before I do that, I want to ask you a question because you mentioned Mary Lou's daughter, you mentioned your son, and you also mentioned Gavin Newsom, which I didn't know that he was once that he's identified as having dyslexia as well. Um, and I was reading the New York Times this weekend. I don't know if you read the article about, you know, this movement around literacy and reading and kind of the understanding that we're having. And a mom, a mother said that you know, before this movement, she was just another dys dyslexia parent. She was a dyslexic parent, right? And now all of a sudden people are, are realizing it's all kids. Um, and so I would just wonder as, you know, you're naming all of these, you know, people who are, are successful and, and are identified with dyslexia and parents who are facing the same thing. You know, what would you say to parents who kind of feel like they are being kind of cornered as a dyslexia parent and or the parent and the parents who are feeling like they're part of the movement? Well, I would say a number of things. First of all, most, many of our billionaires are on the spectrum. The most recent example is <laughs> Elon Musk. But, you know, one of our large donors is Chuck Schwab, and I don't think he would be upset at me saying that he, you know, he's he's profoundly dyslexic. It's been of, of huge importance in his life, and so he's been a very generous supporter, and he's created, you know, an empire. So, so and that's because he looks at the world differently, and he has skills that the average person doesn't have. So, you know, we all have different brains. I, I think... You know, common thought is we, we all have the same brain, but we choose to use it differently. But that's not what's going on. We actually have very different brains, and we have strengths and we have weaknesses. And our journey in life is to find out how to use them as best as possible. And when you're dyslexic and you have a hard time learning in a traditional classroom, school is going to be the hardest moment in your life. Once you get out of school, you know, you, you, you're going to bloom. And, and statistically, entrepreneurship, entrepreneurs are, are, are much more dyslexic on the scale of learning differences than people who tend to go into structured corporate jobs. And so, you know, there's tremendous opportunity. But, you know, it is a journey, unfortunately, of the have versus the have-nots. And for the have-nots, they aren't they aren't educated about this. They can't get their kids the the help they need. And so that's the somewhere in this journey I realized that I was connected to all the people that were the haves, which are by the way, they're all the this is a mob of angry moms. You know, it's mostly moms driving this. And then there are a few of us, like one of the people in the articles, Kareem Weaver, who's a terrific uh, spokesperson about this, and that's a whole other story. But he was in that article mentioned, and I, I love Kareem. But the, the, the it's it's um, the moms are driving this change. But but at some point, I realized I was picking up the wrong end of the stick because this is this is a, a an issue of social equity, and most of the people don't know what to do, and the system has failed them. And I think if there's a a called a political divide in the country, it's this. You know, do you do you think it's a system problem or, or, you know, are people just not, you know, pulling them up by their themselves up by their bootstraps and doing what it takes. And that, that's the debate you get in. And I've, I've crossed the political spectrum now. And I now understand that it's the system we've created a system, which is now we're and it's not our fault. Everybody's trying to do a great job, but we now have science that allows us to do it differently. And that's what I'm passionate about. I believe this neuroscience gives us a new, 
you know, missile in our in our portfolio here to use to 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 fight a battle that we've lost. I mean, we failed at it. It's 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 uh, there's no other way to look at it objectively. Wow. So let's okay. Um, I, I totally agree with you, and I think that you're hitting on something that it hits me really hard because in Colorado we went very a really long time without much of a dyslexia screener. Definitely nothing universal, and we were really using bad curriculums that, you know, weren't teaching phonics. So it's, it's true that you're, what you're saying about, um, the haves and the haves nots and the people who can say something's not working for my kid. What do I do next? Um, I'm sure you listen to this whole the story podcast and they talk about how a lot of those kids were just getting private tutoring. And so we didn't see kind of the detriment that was happening. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about you because what we've talked about for the last 20 minutes is all, all the good that you've done, the people you've brought together, the money you've raised and, and, and the way that you care about this for so many kids, not just your own child. Um, but this isn't how you started. You started going for the job that would pay you the most amount of money. And so, um, I'd love to know, you know, when did you decide that first, let's, let's talk first of all, like, when did you decide that, you know, the money part of the job, like the VC was what you wanted to do? How did, how did that change happen? Yeah, the, the, the moment was I was in, I had, I had already gone from big corporate to small company. And in the middle of that, I had some disagreements about the str- strategy of the company. And that's when I realized the people that really control the strategy are the people that fund the company. And so that's what drove me to, to do that. I think I also dis- discovered for myself that I was much more interested in focusing on a bunch of different projects at once rather than putting all my energy into a single company in a single industry. And so like I have friends that are the complete opposite. They can only do one thing at a time, but I learned that I'm actually good at processing across different companies and different industries. And I actually like to connect things that are not necessarily connected. And that's, I think, my one of my strengths. So that's how I moved into venture. But it wasn't really to make money. It was really to change the world. Because if you look at entrepreneurs who are successful, none of them do that. Because you, you have to be an idiot to be an entrepreneur. I mean, it's such a hard journey. It's like running a marathon with, you know, ankle weights and, and, and barbells in your hand. It, it's so hard. Everybody is against you. So you're doing it because you, you see some hole in the world and you want to fill that hole and, and you just can't think about anything else. And so that's really what venture is about. And uh, that's what's really driven in different ways the rest of my life. Okay. So do you remember what the first hole you wanted to fill was? Um, it was, you know, it wasn't my, the entrepreneur is the one who's, who's filling these dark holes as I think of them. And, and so it was really helping them. So I would meet entrepreneurs who were very passionate about something. And then I would have to go through a whole filter to figure out, you know, what is, what is their interest and is there a market for that and how big is the market and is there going to be a return on the investment? So there's still a, a financial process there, but it's really about, it's really about the problem they're trying to solve. And is that problem big enough, important enough, and are they capable of solving it? That's really all venture capital is. Okay. So when you think about the, the entrepreneurs you've met, can you think of someone who, when you heard the problem they wanted to solve, like it, you, they got it. They had a North Star that you'd never seen before, something that like really changed your perspective. 
Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it sounds, I've been doing this so long. I mean, my example is going to sound like the, 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 the Model T car, but when the, the internet first launched in 95 and 98, I was in this company called Jetfax, and we took the company public, and it made, you know, at the time it was revolutionary, which was having a, a machine that didn't just print, but it scanned and copied and faxed, and faxed was huge at that time. That's how, you know, and you can't and so you think 30 years later how much we progress we made, but we, the, the, the CEO came to us one time, and he said, you know, we had like a whole room full of software that does everything. And, and he says, you know, I found this little piece of code that will allow you to take a fax and convert it to an email very efficiently. And we're like, and it, and, and it probably doesn't make any sense today, but it was like, oh, my God, that's revolutionary. Because in those days, what used to happen is you used to travel around and, and used to ask people to fax you documents when you were in business. And you used to pay a dollar a page for a fax in a hotel room. And, and so it's like if I could get that fax turned into an email and get it for free and have it electronic, this would be revolutionary. We renamed the company eFax. And uh, we we immediately we got we got on CNBC, and the stock went crazy. And we drove this into a market, and it transformed the company. And 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 then it it sort of it was one of the early examples in the internet of a very successful and profitable business that that actually launched. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that didn't work, uh, but that was an example that did. So it was one of the pieces of you know dumb luck that I stumbled into. But it reminds, we me, of the yeah, it reminds me of like the famous Netflix story, right? Like they were mailing out the DVDs and then wanted to move to streaming. But a lot of people didn't see that. They were like, why would we, like, this is a money, a cash cow. Why would we change it? So it's cool that your team and that this, this entrepreneur could see that. All right. So tell me about a time that, that you were wrong. Like you, you thought you oh. had the problem to solve. You had the star. Give me one all of those. All the time. All the time. <laughs> I mean, my biggest failure probably was this company called ADX and, 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 and you know, Twenty-five years later, the, the the company that looks like ADX is wildly successful. But at the time, it was a, it was, it was a, in the old days, big companies transacted business with each other with these very expensive electronic data interchange uh, computers systems, and little companies couldn't participate in that because it was too expensive. We found a way to create an internet version of that so that everybody could talk to everybody electronically, which again today seems normal, but at that time it wasn't. Everybody was still faxing everything. Big companies, airlines, everybody. But you, And so we developed this technology, and I, I thought it was going to revolutionize the world, and it, it, it did eventually, but it was very slow. And so we poured $100 million in this thing. We had corporate partners, all kinds of stuff. And, and we talked to the customer, and they go, yeah, yeah, well, this is this is really important. We want to convert our system over. But it took a lot of effort to convert. And what happened was it was always 10th on their list. They wanted to do it, but they had nine things that were more important. And we slowly went broke waiting for big companies to transition the technology to the next generation. And ultimately we bet and we lost. So that was a very, that was a very hard lesson. You can have, you can have a problem, you can have a solution to a problem and it's, and people can even want it. Customers can want it. And that still isn't always enough. So sometimes it's a distribution channel or other issues that block a business. That's what makes business the greatest game in the world because it, it's so hard. 
we see this in education too, right? Like we can have the right solution and then our RFP doesn't go through or the state doesn't, you know, someone doesn't get it. We're one generation just too far from what they already know, right? Some of it is just, this is what I know. This is working for me right now. And here's one of the reasons why, if you study the diffusion rates, as it's called, in these these markets, a, a business to consumer adoption is is very rapid. You look at the internet, TV, any technology, and in a matter of years, it can go up to 80 plus percent. But the average diffusion rate of a business to business, and especially a more industrial kind of a process, which probably is more equates to education, is 16 years. So it's because you've got you've got this entrenched built system which adopts very slowly, and that's the frustrating part. You've got these a great technology to bring into education. You've got all these companies trying to innovate in education, but you have a system that is very is not structured to to change. I like to say, and it's probably not a you know they probably don't like this, but it's like you know our education system its purpose is to is to teach us to learn. And yet it is not a learning organization. It is not a, in in business, we create structures so the organizations learn rapidly. They fail fast. They move forward. Education is not designed that way for a lot of reasons, including their local control issues and um, people who want to be involved from every stakeholder in that change. And so change, like politics, happens very slow. Every stakeholder resonates with me a lot. There's always a lot of people we have to ask for things. I totally get that. All right, let me ask you two more business questions because I'm, I'm so curious. So something I, I've noticed in this conversation is um, you seem to like control, Steve. You know, like you, you were working with the Charles Armstrong School and then you're the president of the Charles Armstrong Board, right? And, and you, you switched to VC because you wanted to get to change the world and, and help control some things. So what happens, what happens for you when you're either working with an entrepreneur or you're working with an organization and there, and there isn't a place for you to control it? What do you, what do you do next? Well, that's, I hadn't thought about it that way. I guess I, 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 I try to figure out, cause I'll, I do this a lot. I'll join, I'll make an investment or I'll join a, a board of a nonprofit more likely. And, and I don't know that much about it. So I'm slow to learn. And out of that, I learn, I try to understand their strategy and then I try to understand where their strategy is flawed. Usually organizations strategies are not optimized for, um, you know, maximum impact. And so I try to f- identify a few in a, in a complex system. There are always a few points of leverage and I try to figure out what those are and I get smart enough about those. And then I start to push on the, the lever points and people start to see. So, you, you know, you, 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 you lead from behind, you, you show people, you know, different ways of operating and they will eventually get there. So I guess that's, you know, because that, <laughs> and, and that, here's why this is an interesting question, because business today, it operates, you know, in the, it, it used to be a commanding control and it, it's become much more egalitarian. But what's happened now, just in the last since COVID, is we have this huge power exchange happening where there's now a shortage, what appears to be a permanent shortage of talent supply. And so companies have to operate more like nonprofits. They have to, they can't. They can't tell employees what to do. They have to ask them what to do. They have to convince them what to do. And so it actually, not-for-profit and for-profit company management really converges a lot more, I think, in the future. All right. So my last business question, then I'm going to ask you a little bit about your family. Um, so we started this conversation and I said, you know, in my MBA class, most people aspire to be you or be like you. And if you were going to give 
those people advice, right? Someone who wants to go and have impact in the business world, whether it's about money or something else, and then do a lot of good, what would be the advice you'd give? I would give the advice to be patient because you can't, you know, a lot of people are in love with being in love, but you can't find your 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 partner in life until they come along. And sometimes that happens in, in I have a friend that happened in grade school, but a lot of times, I mean, it didn't happen for me till my 30s. And so um, you, you can't force, you can't force an entrepreneurial opportunity. You can't force a problem you want to solve. Life has a way of giving it when it's supposed to happen. The average age, by the way, of entrepreneurship is 39 years old. You know, the myth of it being young because uh, a Steve Jobs or a Mark Zuckerberg happened when they were young is, is the rare exception. That's a, that's a lottery ticket situation. So I think you have to focus on building skills and being curious being open-minded and always watching for opportunities. And eventually something will come along, maybe like in my case later in life, where those skills you know, are needed in order to solve a problem that a, the world needs solving. All right. So when we talked about this, about how you, you know, a little bit about your career, how you've gotten to where you've been, how you were patient for, for what you wanted or, or for finding what you were meant for, I guess is kind of the way you'd put it. But where in that journey did you have your sons? Well, I didn't, I, 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 I was 43 years old when I had my twin boys. And so, wow. you know, it was later in life and, you know, it's just, it's a different experience when, when you're later and my career was already more established. Um, so, yeah. Um, so you're 43 and you have, you have your, your boys. Um, and I'm sure just like me, you feel like in, in addition to all the great things that you've done, your kids are always the best. <laughs> um, and when did you find out that, that one of them had dyslexia? Well, I think we were fortunate in two regards. One is that they were twins, so you have this automatic comparative system. But in addition to that, for reasons I won't get into, we ended up, they ended up going to kindergarten at the French American School in San Francisco. And so not only are they, and it's a 100% immersion program. So my kids are learning French in kindergarten. And my one son just got it. He was brilliant at it. And we learned out later in the year, my other son, which is, this is classic dyslexic behavior. Not only was he not getting the French, but the way he was compensating was he befriended this girl. And they told us later on the entire year, every time the teacher talked, he turned to this girl and he said, what did she say? And he, he was already developing compensating skills in kindergarten and, and responding. But then we went through the typical, you know, at the end of the year, you know, he's not succeeding. He's not working hard enough. He's, you know, he's lazy. He's this, he's that. It was like, well, it actually doesn't seem lazy. It seems like he's actually working harder at getting things done. That doesn't make sense. But again, I, I don't want to it's not their fault. It's just people have a certain way of thinking. And if it doesn't fit in their system, then, you know, they, they, they think of it that way. But my wife, who's really the brilliant one in this journey, saw this early on. She didn't understand all of it. But like, like you know, again, mostly these angry moms start networking around and she kind of figured this out. And when, when the school said all of this stuff, she didn't take it personally. She was like, we're out of here. And she started researching alternatives. We got him tested and we got him to the specialty school. So we're, we're the lucky one. He was there. He got remediated from first to sixth grade and it successfully transitioned out and has learned how to navigate the world successfully. But, 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 you know, we all have learning differences. So we, we all have challenges, whether you're dyslexic or not, and how do we use our strengths and weaknesses to our best abilities. And so in that sense, you know, I don't think it's any different. 
Yeah. And so then, so, so you got him tested, you got some more for, you know, first of all, you were interested. I think what, what I hear from you and what I hear about your wife is a curiosity, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of saying like, this is a problem, you know, I think so often there's this competitive feeling about parenting of like, what are they supposed to be doing? And instead of doing that, you're like, all right, let's just find out about our kid, right? Let's have some curiosity. Let's get some more information. And then you ended up at, at Charles Armstrong. And then how did you end up being the president of Charles Armstrong's board? I have this continuous vision of that joke where, you know, they say, who, who's volunteering for this? And everybody else steps back and I move too slowly. I mean, it really was a, there actually was there. I guess there was a story. When I went to the first, they asked me to join the board. We had this first board meeting and we spent all morning talking about this huge problem the school had. And there were literally 40 people around this table. And they said, okay, who's going to, who's going to, and I already told them ahead of time, like, look, I'll join the board. I'm going to listen for a year. I'm not going to do anything. And they said, okay, who's going to lead this problem? And we sat there in silence and it felt like 10 minutes and I couldn't believe it. Nobody raised their hand and said, I'll take, and I was like, I don't know what I'm volunteering for, but I can't stand it. I'll, I'll take this on. And that's literally how I sort of stepped up. There was literally a stupid, you know, my wife thinks I'm an idiot because I'm constantly volunteering. It's like, but there's this problem that needs to get solved and nobody wants to solve it. And so I'm the idiot who's going to try to solve it. Okay. But what you're talking about though, I think does happen to a lot of people and that they like volunteer for anything and everything. There must be a moment where you decide this is for me. This is not for me. When do you, when do you feel that tug of this is for me besides the silence in the room? For me, it's really the, 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 the size of the problem and the hope that there's an opportunity to solve it. I think one of the reasons education hasn't been solved sooner is because everybody knows it's broken in a lot of different ways, but they don't see the solution. And when I, when I saw the neuroscience and I thought this is a fundamental transformative technology that can be applied here, then I got really passionate about it. If I didn't have a, a solution, then I would, you know, I would power down like everybody else. Wow. That's really exciting. And so thinking about, so your journey, it sounds like you have this moment with your child where, you know, the school's not saying great things. You go and learn. And now you're in this place where it sounds like you have a lot of hope, right? You're seeing the neuroscience, you're seeing kind of things move. Is that really how you feel about what's coming for kids with dyslexia and maybe all kids is, do you have a lot of hope in this moment? Well, yeah, I'm an optimist anyway, so I'm always <laughs> going to have hope, but, you know, maybe against all odds. So, yeah, I'm, I, I always try to be balanced. I mean, there are a lot of problems in the system and there are a lot of places. So, so you find ways to, to, to reframe it. So the, one of the problems with education as a technologist is it's not, you know, it isn't one person that manages it. So you have this great solution. You can't just sell it once and then watch it deployed and you can go home and play golf. I mean, what happens is you've got this local control and you've got to arm wrestle class by class, school by school, district by district, you know, county by county. And so that can be very frustrating, but I've learned that that's also a strength because if you have a good idea, not everybody's going to like it. And so if you, if, 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 if that person at the top of that one organization doesn't like it, you're done. But in education, you can go find people that are early adopters and get excited about it. You can create these pilots and you can stand them up and elevate them and have, have people see that you're making progress. So, so I think of it as an opportunity to do that in a system that, you know, otherwise it also, you know, makes it challenging. 
It's interesting. We get experiences at Amira all the time that some of our biggest successes are district mandates where the district says you have to use the product or they're grassroots from teachers who are just like, I, my kids need to read. This is what we got to do, you know? And so it's interesting yeah. that we kind of, that you get, you get to see both in education. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, think, I don't, think, think about the Apple computer. The Apple computer wasn't adopted by corporate America. People started bringing their computers into work literally because they were so frustrated by their systems at work. They started using their own computers and eventually corporations adopt them. So that's what happens in a lot of cases with technology. Yeah. It's interesting because I usually think of that as frustrating, but I actually think it's nice to hear someone say it as hopeful and optimistic with education that, you know, there's a way to. Yeah. And, and you meet a lot of teachers and a lot of superintendents that love it. They love, you know, I could, I could name many of them. I mean, right here in Napa, Barbara Nemco is the superintendent of education. She's super advanced forward pushing. Dave Gordon in Sacramento, same thing. You know, they're always trying to push the system, but they know it's a complex system and they're masters at navigating it to get results. So you've got to be, you've got to be hopeful, but you've got to be patient. Hopeful and patient. Those are the words I'm going to send us out with because as you can see, the sun is rising in Colorado and in California. I'm going to end us with just five quick questions and hopefully you can answer them quickly. So again, although you've done a great job already. So just five quick questions that um, first thing that comes to mind. So the first is tell me about a reading moment in your life that means a lot to you. A reading moment. Um, I was on a train from Washington to New York and it was rainy and I opened a book and I just fell in love with reading on that train. Do you know what the book was? I don't remember the book, no. That's okay. I think, um, I think one... it was a Clive Cussler novel, actually. <laughs> okay, one piece of technology that is really inspiring to you that gives you a lot of hope right now? Uh, AI. Yeah. And it also gives me a lot of fear, by the way. <laughs> okay. Is there anything in AI that you, what have you done with AI recently? That's been really interesting. Have you done anything cool? Well, I mean, I'm looking at it for all of our companies that I invest in because it's a fundamental technology that changes everything. So for sure that, and obviously Amira is doing amazing work. I was involved, uh, you know, I've, I, I got connected to Amira very early in the journey and I've been excited about its application to reading is a kind of a merging of two things I love. All right, at one moment you said that the reason you've taken the path that you have is because you wanted to change the world. What's one piece of advice you'd give to somebody who wants to change the world? Don't give up. <laughs> All right, and the last question is, what's one book that everyone should read? Uh, Zen and the martial arts. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for spending time with us today, especially so early in the morning. This has been a really inspiring conversation for me. Everything from education to business to students with dyslexia and teachers and researchers. Thank you again. It really has meant a lot. Thank you, Laura. I'm inspired by you. Thanks for joining us on the More Than a Test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader, and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week, and thanks for joining.